0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see.
0: Welcome to it. Welcome to Orioles magic, the podcast presented by Miller Lite, Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold and Jeff. We have uh, one of our favorites as a guest today. He is a mass and broadcaster for both radio and television. And he also is one of two people who can say they were the first overall choice of the baseball draft by the Baltimore Orioles. It's not Adley Rutschman. So I'm talking about big Ben McDonald. And, uh, Big Ben, one a unique guy in so many ways, but offers so much insight to the game and to the season we're in right now, which is draft season.
2: Because he's seen all of these players before. I mean, he talked about seeing Torkelson in the NCAA postseason last year, getting his take on him was great. He saw Vanderbilt a lot. He's sees Vanderbilt a lot because most of the games that he does are SEC contests. So really getting a, an, an in-depth look at Austin Martin and what he could provide to the Orioles if he's the one selected, and then also some interesting uh, tidbits from being the number one overall pick, what he said to Adley Rutschman when Rutschman was picked number one overall by the Orioles, and even going back to what Cal Ripken told Ben uh, when he was 1-1 coming out of LSU. It's a it's an in-depth and fun conversation, and Ben's one of my favorites in, in part because the first game I ever did for the Orioles was with
0: him. Uh, what a great partner to have, and I don't want to take up too much time here because – we cover so much ground with Ben, but to summarize, uh, we get into this draft, we get into the expectations of being 1 1, like uh, both Ben and Adley Rutschman. Uh, factor this in: Ben was the best-known college player when he was drafted number one by Baltimore in 1989. The Orioles were in the middle of this why not season, coming off of a horrendous season, but in this amazing pennant race in 1989. Ben's drafted in June, signed in August, and pitches in the big leagues in September. I mean, that is amazing. Uh, you wouldn't see it today by, by the standards of the game, uh, but certainly just just unreasonable expectations for his career. And by the way, he was a really good pitcher for nine seasons. Only his health, which we get into in so many ways, uh, slowed him down. But you know, he offers unique perspective of college and Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, a guy who was represented by Scott Boris, so very relatable to this day, one of the first early big scores for for Scott and his uh, rise to, to prominence and, and dominance in that world. So is just a fascinating character, not to mention all the alligators, Jeff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the story he tells at the very end about bringing an alligator in a bag to spring training and how guys were screaming in ways that you probably don't ever hear in a, in a, in a clubhouse. Uh, that was a, a great way to, to end our conversation.
0: All right, let's get to it. Let's get to Big Ben McDonald's. And joining us right now in Orioles magic, the podcast is the number one pick from the 1989 MLB draft. Also, our massing colleague, the one and only Big Ben McDonald. Ben, how are you doing down the bayou? Man, I'm doing
3: good. Starting to warm up down here and uh, getting hot and humid, which it does in June. And so everything's good, man. I'm just, I, I got my Orioles shirt. on. i hope you can see it. It says O's right there. And yeah, just, we can see it. I'm just kind of hoping that the season like everybody else is uh get started real quick. You know that that's my only hope. That's the only thing I want to happen right now. I want to start playing baseball or actually watching baseball.
0: Uh so Ben, let's get it rolling here. Uh let's get into really I actually want to start with being that number one pick. I know you've talked about it, you know, a thousand times at this point in your life. Uh but we're getting to draft time and you can offer uh, perspective on that that only few can. Uh but as far as that label and someone who is as kind of hyped up as you and you were in kind of rare, a rarefied category. Take us through that as a 2021 20, year old and the mm-hmm. pressure of that.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's difficult. I mean, if I said it wasn't, I'd be lying to you, you know, the expectations with being one, one, the expectations with going to a franchise, you know, that in 1988 they lost 21 in a row and finished last and got the first pick with me and Adley Rutschman, who, you know, it's kind of a similar situation. You're kind of expected to be the turning point, the savior of an organization. And when you start listening to all those things and you hear people say it and you start to believe it, you start to try to live up to certain expectations. And it, for me, it was a big adjustment for me, you know. I mean, of course, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, we I was the first player ever to get the mul- a multi-year contract from an amateur status. I was the first player ever to get a major league contract from an amateur status. So that even added more pressure to – uh me being the number one pick and of course you know i signed august the 19th of 1989 i was in the big league september the first so i got two minor league starts at 21 years old and i was in the big leagues uh playing a, a man's game in a man's world and not really knowing uh anything about it how to prepare myself how to get big league hitters out so it was an adjustment for me you know and and the first year or two for me was was very difficult because i felt like I had to live up to certain expectations, and I'd always had a lot of success, obviously, in high school and college. And I didn't have a ton of success early. There was flashes in there where I did, but you know, it was a learning process for me. I had to call my own game because in college, my coach called every pitch I ever threw. I was just like a machine. Now all of a sudden, I'm 21 years old. I'm in the big leagues. I got to call my own game, and I don't know how to do that, you know. And so there was a lot of adjustments for me along the way, and it wasn't all roses, but. You know, I remember my agent, Scott Boris, saying, listen, there's a learning curve here. You're going to have to get about 150 to 200 innings in the big leagues before the light bulb starts to flicker a little bit. And you start to understand how to prepare yourself, how to get big league hitters out, how to set big league hitters up. And he was right. It took me a couple of hundred innings to kind of figure it out. And, of course, as you guys know, and y'all probably read the story, Cal Ripken Jr. came to me and Chris Hoyles and, you know, one day and then said, hey, I see you guys are struggling calling pitches. Do you mind if I have some input in that? And he did. And Cal started calling every pitch for me out from shortstop as he would relay pitches from uh, from shortstop to Chris Hoyles behind the plate. And Chris Hoyles would relay pitches to me the way Cal held his glove and where he put his hand was certain. And then after the game, we would talk about this is why I wanted to throw Corey Schneider a breaking ball in this situation. And so that helped speed up my learning curve as well. So Cal Ripken, Jr. was a big part of my growing and learning and maturing process at the big league level.
2: When you had an opportunity to talk to Adley Rutschman about being 1-1 just the the second, you know, before you, uh, what pieces of advice did you give to him to manage those 1-1 expectations?
3: Well, I gave him the same advice that Cal Ripken Jr. gave me. Cal Ripken Jr. wrote me a letter during my negotiations before I even signed. And he wrote a letter and he said, listen, you just want to play baseball. The little bit I know about you, I can tell. But when you get here, the expectations are going to be high. But you just be you. You go out and you work hard every day. You show everybody you're just one of the guys. You want to be a part of an organization, a winning organization. Be the first one to the ballpark. Outwork everybody while you're here doing that. And he said the fans in Baltimore are blue-collar people. He said if you go out every day and you bust your butt and you trying the hardest you can every day, he said, things will work out for you, you know. And that's, that was my love relationship with the Oriole fans. I felt like I went in there and, you know, nobody's career ever goes as good as you want it to go. I wish I would have stayed healthier and won more games and played 15 years in the big leagues. Didn't work out. I, I had some injuries along the way. And we all know those stories about maybe I threw too much as an amateur. You know, but I probably did at some point. that probably led to a lot of my my breakdown. But at the end of the day, I felt like I went out and I worked hard every day and I tried to be the best ball player and best teammate that I could be along the way. And I told Adley the same thing. I said, Adley, I said, smile, have fun. There's going to be pressure, but that's pressure with being the number one pick. And I said, just go out every day. And I told him, I said, Cal Ripken told me the same thing. Go out every day and outwork everybody. You'll get the respect from the community. You'll get the respect from your teammates as well. And that's what I told Adley. And, look, you guys were around him in spring training. There was always a smile on his face. He worked as hard as anybody there, and he enjoyed what, what, what he was going through. You could tell there's pressure. There's going to be pressure. There's not a whole lot of pressure in AA right now, but when he gets to the big leagues, there's going to be pressure. But, listen, that goes along with the job. It's just part of it.
0: Yeah, I always think about Matt Wieters, who wasn't a number one pick, but he was number five overall, but immediately became the top prospect in baseball because he just dominated – uh, single and double-A to a point where it was almost historic. So, uh, you know, cover Sports Illustrated at a very young age before he even played a big league game. And, and, and Matt has had a very, very good, by any reasonable standard, major league career. He was a part of multiple Oriole playoff teams, teams that had not been there before, um, hit a number of home runs, uh, was very good behind the plate. Uh, but if you had built up in your head mega star or bust, then maybe he fell short, which is probably an unreasonable expectation for anybody who is drafted.
3: No, I agree. I mean, if you
0: look at Matt Wheaters'
3: career, it was an outstanding career, you know, and for anybody to say he fell short, I, I think that's a little bit short-sighted, you know. I, I think I think Weeder's was, was, was a dominant player there for a while, you know. And like I said, we all hope our careers go better, and we all hope when you're a high draft pick that you play for 15 years. But the reality of it, you can go through the Orioles system over the years of number one picks, you can go through number one – not number one overall picks, but first-round picks. A lot of guys don't even make it to the big leagues. That's the bottom line, you know. And so – and some guys are, are, are rock stars along the way. I think Rutchman, and not to try to put too much pressure on him, but, but he's going to be a player that's going to play for a while. Is it going to be a, a five-time all-star kind of career? Is it going to be a Hall of Fame career? We don't know the answer to those kind of things right now. But Adley Rutchman's going to play for a while in the big leagues. There's no doubt in
2: my mind. We're nearing the MLB draft and the Orioles this year have the number two overall pick. If you analyze all the different guys available right now and you're the one, hypothetically, you were making the pick, uh, what would you do?
3: Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the Orioles are in a unique situation to where if they want to go with a pitcher, there's some stud pitchers out there. You, you guys mentioned Asa Lacey over at Texas A&M. I love him. Big left-hander, 6'4", 225, up to 97 from the left side with a wipeout breaking ball. Uh, He is, to me, the best swing and miss guy as far as stuff goes It's in college baseball out there. The only drawback with him is the command needs to get a little bit better for him. He made a jump from his freshman year to his sophomore year. I felt like he got off to a great start what a little bit we saw this year his junior year. I felt like the command would tick up a little bit more. I wish we got to see him a little bit more, but we didn't get to see him. But if you're looking for swing and miss and maybe biggest upside, to me, it's Asa Lacy. If you're looking for the pitcher that probably is the most polished right now, Emerson Hancock over at Georgia, the big six-five right hander over there, he's up to 97 from the right side. It's a little more polished, a little bit better command, but he doesn't strike out the guys to me that a high draft pick should strike out. It's just over one strikeout uh, per nine innings uh, or per inning with me, which is not quite enough if you're talking about the number two overall pick. Although he's a big leaguer too, he's going to pitch. So. The Orioles have two choices there, and if you look at a position player, Spencer Torkelson over at Arizona State and stepping on campus, he's been one of the nation's leaders in home runs every year. I saw him play last year when he came to Bat Roots. The bat, the ball really comes off the bat. It's big league pop all day long. Now he is a first baseman all day long. We know about the log jam that the Orioles have over at first base potentially with Chris Davis and, and Mancini and who knows who else that could potentially be there. But I feel like he's the best college bat that's out there right now. I really think the Orioles are going with Austin Martin from Vanderbilt, uh, a young man who is probably the most athletic player in the draft. I mean, you talk about a guy that can run, he can throw a little bit. Now, is the arm good enough to play the left side of the infield? I can't tell you that. I don't. He didn't show me that. Um, and that's the drawback. When you take the guy number two overall for me, you want to be able to say this guy's a shortstop, this guy's a center fielder, this guy's a whatever. You can't really say that with Austin Martin, but I can tell you this, guys. The bat plays for him. He hit with more power last year. He can really go get it. So, is he going at the end of the day, is he going to be a second baseman or is he going to be an outfielder? He didn't show me the arm to play third base at the big league level, but I'm telling you what, he performed well. Vanderbilt, as you guys know, won the World Series last year. He performed big time on the biggest stage. He really shined. And so, that tells me that the moment's not too big for him. Uh, and I really think that's where – the Orioles probably land, although if there's a surprise and Torkelson's out there at number two, the Orioles could take Torkelson. So, uh, either way, I think all four of those guys we mentioned are big league guys, there's no doubt in my mind, and that's probably going to be Austin Martin, you know, from what I'm hearing, because he's athletic and he can almost play anywhere on the field. That seems to be where a lot of these organizations are going now. They want these most athletic kids where they can almost plug them in in different type situations if they can.
0: Ben, how much should big league clubs value guys like Rutschman and Martin based on they played at big-time programs in college, those two got to the biggest stage in those programs, and, and were the centerpieces of championship clubs?
3: I think it matters. I think it matters a lot. I mean, when you talk about the SEC, you talk about the best uh, you know conference in all of college baseball. Those guys play at the biggest level that you can play. They've played on the biggest stage. Adley Rutschman was a football player. You guys know that. He performed in front of 50, 60, 80,000 people. He also won a national title in baseball. These guys have proven over time that the moment is not too big for them. Adley Rutschman shined at the College World Series as a freshman. He shined again as a sophomore when they won the whole thing. And I was worried about Rutschman because his sophomore year, you guys remember, there were three other first-rounders in that lineup with him. So I didn't know how good he was. When all those guys left their junior year and Rushman comes back for his junior year two years ago, and then you say, okay, now we're going to see if Rushman can really hit because he didn't have the protection his junior year as he had his sophomore year. Well, what did he do? He went out there and put up uh, outstanding numbers again, and that's when I really knew Rushman was for real. And so he's been a Team USA guy, and I like those guys. I think the college guys that play at those levels to me are a lot less risk than a high school kid. Maybe some high school kids have a bigger upside, but with high school kids, man, you just don't know what you're getting every day. When you get to these proven guys that play college ball, that have played at the elite levels as those two guys have,
2: I don't see where you can go wrong. There's been some talk if the Orioles were to go Martin at the two spot that he he probably is a second baseman. Do you think he would be able to play center field or another outfield position if the Orioles decide to move him to that to a spot like that? Oh, no doubt. I mean, he is athletic. You
3: know, Tim Corbin, the head coach of Vanderbilt, I got a chance to talk to him last year about Martin. He said Martin's one of the most athletic kids he's ever had. So, uh, a lot of scouts, as you guys know, have pegged Martin as an outfielder. They – I mean, when you talk – he's got elite speed, guys. He can run. He can go get it. Now, the only question I have with Martin is how good is the arm, right? And I think if the arm was better, uh, and maybe the arm develops a little bit enough to where he can play third base at the big league level. We don't know that yet. But what I do know is when you talk about athleticism, you could plug him in at third base. You could plug him in at second base. You could plug – look at Cody Bellinger, right? Cody Bellinger can go play the outfield. Then you can stick him in first base. You can move him around. And, again, I think that's where these organizations are going now with these athletic kids where they have a primary position. But you can move them when somebody needs a day off. You can take Arson Martin from, say, left field or right field and you move him into second base, you rest your regular second base, and you move him back out again. So he's a valuable commodity to me just because he is so athletic.
0: So we all hope there's baseball this summer, to say the least, and, and we all uh, hope the Orioles have a great season. But they might not. We'll see how it is. They're going to run out of another young club uh, for the most part this coming year. They went Rutchman at one. We'll find out what they do at two, but it's going to be a really good player, a really good college player. And then there's a chance – They might be back in the top three next year in the draft. And a lot of GMs for years have been eyeing another Vanderbilt kid, a pitcher named Kumar Rocker. Ben, you've seen him a few times. How special is he? He's special. Kumar, you know, during the
3: Rutschman draft, Rutschman was clearly the best player. He was going to be the number one pick. This year's draft, not so much. It could be Torkelson. It could be Martin. They've been kind of going back and forth. I see Lace's name mentioned a few times, too. Next year's draft, the only person I'm hearing, number one, is Kumar right now. If he continues to develop like he did his freshman year, and his freshman year he was, again, a young man that performed well on the biggest stage. When it got to be playoff time for Vanderbilt baseball and all of a sudden Kumar had about 80 innings under his belt, you saw a different guy. You saw a difference maker on the field. 6'5", 260, former football player, knows how to compete with a big-time fastball from the right side and a wipeout-type breaking ball. So, right now, Kumar is the number one overall pick. And, look, you, one of you guys, I think you might mention it earlier, man, if you can go Rutschman, Martin, and Kumar three years in a row and you combine that with what's in the Orioles system right now, you got to like where the Orioles will be, say, four years, three or four years from now, you know, because it's, it's, it's building. And we know what's going on in Baltimore. We know about the rebuild. We're trying to inject. You talked to Mike Elias. He's trying to inject as much talent as he can in this organization, as fast as he can. The five-round draft obviously hurts the Orioles this year. There's no doubt about that because they're not able to add as many players as they want to to the draft. Uh, But all in all, uh, you know, the Orioles, you know, you hate to see them pick number one again next year, but at the end of the day, it would not be the worst thing in the world if they get Kumar Rocker.
2: Next year is going to be strange, I'd say, from a college baseball perspective because of the number of players that are going to be able to go back. If they want to, it could lead to some better things for for junior colleges, but it could also lead to a little bit of a log jam in next year's draft and cause some players who may be juniors to decide to sign as free agents that they're not picked in the, in the first five picks uh, or Mm -hmm. the first five rounds. How much do you think that fact could benefit the Orioles when you start going to $20,000 signs for this year?
3: Well, I think it could. You know, if you're a senior out there right now, uh, I think you're going to take your chances. You're not going to be drafted in the top five rounds, so you're going to sign that free agent contract for $20,000 just to have a chance. Now, if you've got some eligibility left, meaning you're a sophomore, returning sophomore, returning junior, I think you still have some bargaining power. And I think for $20,000, you're going to see a lot of these kids go back to school because of the college experience, because you get another year of your education under your belt. I think you see those guys go back. College baseball, you mentioned it, it, it's somewhat of a train wreck right now. It really is because – and what's – you know, the NCAA, to me, did the right thing. They came in. They gave everybody a year of eligibility back, which is great. I love that. But what they did after that, they kind of disappeared with no more scholarship money for any of these programs, uh, no more roster uh, adding to – being able to expand your roster other than unless you had seniors on there from last year. And so, they kind of looked like the good guys, and they disappeared. What's kind of hidden behind the scenes in college baseball now is a lot of kids are being let go. Uh, these big-time programs, because let's take LSU, who's right here in my backyard. They projected six kids when the season began this year that they would lose to the MLB draft. Now that you're only going to have five rounds, they're probably only going to lose one guy. So now you've got five guys returning to your program that you didn't think you would have. Then you got your incoming class of high school seniors coming in. Well, guess what? Now you've got too many players on campus. People have to be let go. You mentioned the junior college, the team. The mid-majors and the junior colleges are really going to benefit from this because there's going to be kids that should be in D1, but because of roster space limits, are going to end up going to junior college for a year and then maybe transferring back into big-time D1 programs. And so it's good in a way, but it's also been really tough uh, because some kids are being asked to leave certain programs right now. And my son plays junior college baseball, and they've had seven kids be have been let go from his junior college because they're guess what? They're making room for these D1 players that are coming down to the JC level right now. And so it's a trickle-down effect all the way down. The good news, guys, is we're gonna see more talent in college baseball next year than we have ever seen. I talked to one SEC coach the other day, and they're predicting at least 40 big league players in the SEC next year alone. At least 40 just in one conference. And so that's how stacked the SEC, and that's how stacked college baseball is going to be next year.
0: I know everyone's different, Ben, but in your estimation watching these guys up close at the top level of college baseball, how much seasoning do they really need in the uh, current minor league system? I know it's different by position. It's different pitcher hitter uh, and everyone's going to be in a different part of their development. But for that group of college players taken fairly early in the draft, how much time do they really need?
3: You know, I'll be honest with you guys. I, If you play in the SEC or a Power Five conference and you've experienced what Adley Rutschman has experienced, Team USA stuff, big-time conference, College World Series, and let's assume the Orioles take Austin Martin, World Series champion like Adley Rutschman, uh, big-time conference, I don't think they need a whole lot. I'll be honest with you. Because from where they're going playing in front of 10, 12, 15,000 people, There's no reason why an Adley Rutschman in my estimation on Austin Mark can't start at double A. I really think the talent level is similar. Now, do they have to get used to swinging wood bats? Of course they do. Do they have to get used to playing every day, which is different than college ball? Of course you do. So it's a grind on the season. It's more ball games. Uh, You're playing almost every day. Those things are, are things to worry about for me. But for those types of players that have experienced a lot and have a lot of experience, I wouldn't be afraid at all to start guys like that at AA. It wouldn't bother me a second to start Addy Rutchman this year at AA and say, hey, go get 400 at bats. Let me see what you can do. Go get that experience and be ready to get a September call up the following year.
2: If the minor league season does not happen this season, what does that do for the likes of Rutchman, for a Martin, or whoever is pick number two, and then for some of the other key prospects for the Orioles? How much are they, are they damaged? by not being able to play a minor league season this year?
3: Well, it definitely hurts with their development. There's no other way to say that. Um, the only good news is they'll be in the same boat with a lot of other minor leaguers across the country, right? But you lose a year of development. What I'm hoping is, and I'm sure they are too, if the minor league season does not take place, maybe there's an uh, you know, extended spring. Maybe there's something down in Florida. Maybe there's the Arizona Fall League. I'm hoping there's a place for these kids to go get some innings under their belt and get some at-bats under their belt where it's not a total loss of a season. We all know they're not going to get the reps that we hope they would get as far as their development goes. So it's going to hurt, but i got to believe that these organizations and the front office are going to provide places for these top prospects and a lot of their minor leaguers to be able to go and at least get some work in and say October and November, no matter where it is, to try to get up to speed and be ready
0: to go for spring training next year. I couldn't agree more with that, Ben. I want to put you in the Michael Elias position for a moment. Let's say, and we obviously don't know how this is going to play out, they play somewhere between 80 to 100 baseball games this year, uh, starting in July. Not that group of, of younger prospects, and I'll include a Rutschman in that category. You hope they create some sort of big time Arizona Fall League uh, for, for the Grayson Rodriguez of the world and the D.L. Halls of the world. But that group of triple-A pitchers who are mostly already on the 40-man roster who are likely going to get a shot this year July and August anyway I kind of want to see them get run out there uh this season you're going to have expanded rosters because of the burden of the season so you're not really worried about your your bullpen getting worked too much uh you you really want to create some fan intrigue in this year rather than running out you know a stopgap veteran of some kind Send out Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken and some of those guys. You can't afford to lose their season anyway at this point. You need them to get the innings.
3: I totally agree. I, you know, I'd like to see some of those guys get some innings in this year to see where you're at. You know, I think Mike Elias is still trying to fill out the players he has. And one goal that he has, and I know he's got to try to figure out who fits in his organization for the future, right? And so, like, some of those guys you talk about that's going to be on the bus squad or going back and forth It might be part of that 20 20- – 20 players that might not be on the roster, but could be moved back and forth. He's got to find out if some guys fit into this organization, if he can count on certain guys. And if they don't, and he don't think they can, you know, he's probably going to have to get rid of them, you know. But I want to see D.L. Hall. I want to see some of these guys maybe come up. Now, I get it, man. I mean, it, a lot of the front office people, and it's not just Mike Elias, it's around Major League Baseball, they don't want to start the clocks, right? They don't want to start the clock. But for me – I want to see guys get experience, you know. I mean, people are worried about – I was thrown to the wolves at 21 years old, you know, and so I experienced – were there days I went home and nights and I banged my head on the wall? Absolutely. Wondering why I couldn't get guys out at the big, league level. It was tough. I'm not going to lie to you. But it didn't kill me. I was tough enough. You know, I was tough enough to where, hey, it hurt. I'm not going to lie. I went home and cried sometimes. I was upset, but it forced me to work harder. I never felt like I was out of my element. I never felt like that. I didn't belong. I just felt like, you know what, I got to figure this out. I got to get better. And I think if you're talking about Adley Rutschman and some of these other guys, I think these guys are mentally tough, man. I'm not worried about hurting their feelings. It's a tough game. It's a man's world out there. But those guys can do it. But I really think it's more about not starting their clock. But I would like to see, and I know the fans, I know what you're getting at, the fans want to get a little bit of a glimpse of the future. That's what they want to see, you know. And so I'd like to see some of those guys maybe get a taste of it in September, maybe get a few innings in to let the fans know what's coming down the road, you know. And I see both sides of it, but I'm like you, man. I'm ready for some excitement. I want to see a little bit of what's coming.
2: Is there a way to balance that? Because you want to see what's coming, but you also want to see what's coming that can help. Because as we know, sometimes there are players that do great in the minors, and are highly touted and they come to the major leagues and they just can't cut it.
3: Mm, No, there's no doubt. I mean, we we see it all the time. We see guys that have very average minor league careers and all of a sudden they get to the big league level and something happens and they just go off. And we see it the other way, as you mentioned. We see guys we think we're going to dominate and it never really translates to the big league level. So, it goes back to what we talked about. At the end of the day, We just don't know sometimes, you know. We just don't know how it all pans out. Then we see certain guys that come to the big league levels; they struggle, but then they get released and another organization picks them up and they figure something out, and all of a sudden they have productive big league careers, you know. So it's different for everybody. Um, I love what Mike Elias is doing. I think the draft last year was outstanding. I think he's got a game plan. I like the fact that he's accepted responsibility for it. It's kind of been done his way, which is at the end of the day, that means if it doesn't work, he got nobody to blame but himself. But I think that's the way he likes it. You know, he's like, hey, I have a game plan, a blueprint of what we did over in Houston. It worked over there. I think we can make it work over here. The AL East, as you guys know, is the toughest division in baseball. You're dealing with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Blue Jays and the Rays. Hey, it ain't no fun. It's tough. It's kind of like playing football in the SEC. You can't be kind of good to compete. Like, you got to be really good if you're going <laughs> to compete, right? That's just the way it is. But I think Mike gets that. He understands that. And I like the direction the Orioles are going. We all want this to happen tomorrow, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's still going to be a few years down the road. But I like where it's going right now. I know it's tough to watch sometimes. But the good news is, is I felt like Brandon Hyde and the boys played hard last year.
1: They competed
3: every day last year. So for me to call games, although the wins weren't where we all want them, it was still fun to watch because I felt like they tried, they went out, they competed every day. I think that's what you're going to see. God willing, we get the games going this year. You're going to see a lot more of that this year. I think there's going to be some losing going on in there, but I think the boys are going to go out and they're going to bust their butts every day. And at the end of the day, as a fan, that's all we can really ask for.
0: Ben, let's talk about uh, your career and specifically uh unfortunately kind of ties into other uh, things uh, about baseball uh, negotiations and labor negotiations at that but you have this amazing august of 1994 i mean it's august 12th you have 14 wins you pitch the final game before the strike begins i mean you at this point the orioles are are seven and three in august they're contending in a serious way probably for the first time in, in about a decade uh, you may even have a legitimate shot at 20 wins. I don't know if you agree with that. But you have 14 on August 12, and you're cooking. You pitch a uh, 4-0 complete game shutout at Milwaukee County Stadium on Friday, August 5th, nine innings, one hit. Do you remember that night? I do. I do remember that night. I
3: remember that season started off really good for me. I think I won my first seven. And I hit a little lull in the middle. I didn't pitch so good. But then, like I typically did throughout my career, I got stronger, and August and September were good months to me. Uh, at the big league level. And so I remember that night I was pitching well. And Milwaukee was playing pretty well, too, and went in there. And just one of those nights where, you know, I had a little bit of luck on my side. They lined out, hit some balls right to me, But I had really good stuff. And, you know, we ended up throwing a, a one-hit shutout. You know, I think Dave Nelson got the only hit off of me. Uh, I think, like, it was a single or a double or something like that. But, um, yeah, I remember that night. And, and I remember, like you said, but I think Messina had 16 wins. I had 14 wins. We both, you know, probably had another—I don't know, eight, eight or ten starts left, a chance to win 20. You know, when it all happened, and like you said, there was no wild card back then, and so we were battling the Yankees and felt like we had a real shot, and just was heating up, and we're going to make the playoffs for the first time, you know, in a while. And so then the strike happened, and you know, we, we kept home and we kept working out, thinking, "Oh, it's going to happen. Let's get ready. Let's stay ready. Let's stay ready." And it just, it just never happened. It was, it was heartbreak hotel after that, you know.
0: So, Ben, looking back at that night uh, at Milwaukee County Stadium, a place where you eventually actually pitched as a Brewer, uh, Mm -hmm. what what was your uh, sense of that in the scope of your career? Was that one of the best performances to go the distance, allowing just the one hit and allowing no runs, nine Ks as well?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, listen, anytime you can throw a complete game, especially a one hitter, those don't come along very often. I remember that night having – Having really good stuff, you know, and feeling pretty good. And, and obviously, with 146 pitches, I was feeling pretty good for them to leave me in, you know. And so I uh, remember having a really good breaking ball that night and a fastball that was good as well. And, uh, you know, Milwaukee always had a good team, you know. And I'd lost the year before there, uh, two to nothing, and through a complete game and loss. So I remember going back in and wanting to do well. And, uh, uh, the boys went out and scored some runs, and if I'm not mistaken, Chris Hoyles hit a home run, and we ended up winning the ball game four to nothing. So anytime you throw a complete game or one hit, it always
2: stands out in your career. What were you thinking, realizing that I have one or two starts left before this strike happens, and, and then we may not play baseball again this year? How did that change the way that you went about things on the mound that, in those last two outings?
3: You know, I, it didn't change anything for me because in the back of my mind, from a mental standpoint, being prepared standpoint, I blocked all that out. You know, I was like, they kept saying, hey, this is when it's going to happen if we don't get the deal done. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, it's not going to happen. We're going to get this deal done. There's no way in August that they're going to – we're going to go on strike, potentially no playoffs, no World Series. I was like, it's not going to happen. So, I in my mind, I wouldn't allow it to happen. I just tried to stay focused and stay ready, and I was pitching well. and so. I just blocked it all out. And I remember throwing the last game. They said, that's it. We're we're going home. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, it's really happening. So I don't think any of us really thought that it was going to happen. Uh, but as we know, it was it was a big mistake. And it happened. And I think seeing what's going on today, look, you know, if I had one thing I could tell the owners and the players, and they know this, is like, listen, we lost too many fans during that time, man. And, and I get it. We stood up for the things that the union had stood up in previous years for us, you kind of feel a right as a player to stand up for those things. Because those guys that came before you really sacrificed a lot to get you where you are today. And so you kind of feel like you need to kind of hold the rope. you got to hold the line in this situation, you know. And so I'm hoping everybody learned. If it weren't for Cal Ripken, you know, in 95, and it weren't for Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire maybe in 96, those three guys really brought back fans back to baseball because, As you know, we weren't very popular in 94 and 95 when all that happened. So I hope everybody that was involved then, that's involved now, can remember how bad it was and how we cheated the fans out of, you know, a season. And the players too, but the fans more than anybody. So I'm hoping this thing gets done quickly and at least we can play half of a
0: season or something. You know what's funny, Ben, is growing up in Baltimore and, you know, I was devastated about the strike in 94 because I was – you know, in my my orange uh, colored glasses, was sure you guys were going to make the postseason and <laughs> we're going to run down New York and and but when when they got back to playing in '95, if you were in Baltimore at that time, there were still 48,000 at Camden Yards every night. Uh, you know, a lot of optimism for that season coming back, and then you had Cal. So I always I heard everything else about the other baseball markets, but in our world, it was a great time for baseball and to be alive. So, but but I you know it was a unique experience at that point. Also, when you're you know. Uh, 10, 12, whatever I was at the time. You you know, you're just happy baseball is back and and you can kind of forgive and forget really quickly at that moment.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, Baltimore, you know, with the new ballpark opening in 92, it was still kind of new, we were selling out, we had a very competitive team. And so, you're right, at home, we didn't feel that from the fans because – and I always tell people, you got to remember, there were no Washington Nationals. There were no Ravens back then. We were the only game in town. We were it, Oregon, right? And so, uh, everybody flocked to the ballpark back then, you know. And so, things are different now. But now, when you went on the road uh, to different ballparks, then you could see how the strike – and you heard more about it from the fans, how the strike actually – hurt baseball and obviously it did but you're right Baltimore they were so crazy about baseball and really still are that uh
2: that we didn't experience a whole lot of that going back to that game that you pitched against the Brewers you threw 146 pitches Woo! in that game and then <laughs> I I looked back and I saw that there was one game when you were an amateur where you threw 221 pitches knowing what you do now, um, but but maybe even then when you were a younger pitcher, maybe at the very beginning of your time with the Orioles, was there ever a time where you're like, I know I have to be tough and I have to go out and produce innings, but were you ever thinking there's a time when throwing this number of pitches is eventually going to catch up to me?
3: Well, you know, guys, when when you're 22, 25, you think you're 10 foot tall and bullet right? You think you're going to last forever. You think you're going to play forever. Um, And even when I was in my younger days, you know, I think the competitor in me always watched Mike Messina, you know, and and Moose would come off the field and Moose would look down at Johnny Oates and Dick Bosman and just kind of go like this. I'm done. And he'd walk to the clubhouse. And I'd go, what's wrong with that dude, man? How can you take yourself out of a 2-2 ball game? You know, I want to win the game, you know, but Moose was a lot smarter than I was, come to find out, you know? And, like, like I, I would stay in the game. Like, I I don't know. The competitor in me, and even Kyle Ripkin came to me one time and was like, dude, you're going to kill yourself. You, you've got to start taking yourself. I was like, take yourself out of the game? I don't even know what that means. Like, that don't even compute my brain. You're like, I might get knocked out of the game, but I ain't <laughs> taking myself out of the game. You know? I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I can't even relate to that. But. I wasn't the smartest guy in the world. Um, I just love to compete. I wanted to take the ball and go out and compete. And look, it started in high school. You know, like you mentioned, I threw all 13 innings of the state semifinal game, threw 221 pitches, came back the next day and threw the last four innings and closed. In college, I had five saves. I threw nine on Friday, come back and close on Saturday. Um, yeah, it probably led to my breakdown. But when the coach looks at you and it's a ball game out there and you go, hey, can you give me an inning? Damn right, Coach. I can give you anything. Just give me the ball, you know. And that's that's just—I don't know. That's just how I was. And and so I think it's good in some ways. It was bad in, in others, you know. If I could, but it, it, people always ask me if you could go back and do it again, would you do it differently? And I go, I don't know if I'd do it any differently. I just love to compete at the end of the day, you know. I just wanted to go play, and I always thought I'd play fifty. I always felt like I had the body and the stuff and the makeup to play fifteen years in the big leagues, you know. I just. My arm finally gave up on me, and the three surgeries, and I ended up playing only nine years. But that's just that's part of it, you know. It's just the way it is.
0: What was the first time Ben you even heard the words pitch count?
3: You know, in 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 college, I remember, but it wasn't like there was a warning label in there. It's just like, hey, how many? Hey, you know, you threw one hundred and sixty-seven pitches tonight. Oh, really? Oh, okay, okay. That's thing. That seems like a lot, you know. And so I, I didn't really. We knew how many pitches we were throwing. We just didn't know what we were doing to ourselves and how it was breaking us down later on for other starts or maybe breaking us down in our career. So that we didn't come really, really with a warning label, you know. And so that's the difference now, you know. I mean, you know, I think if I would came up in this era where they shut you off at 90 pitches every time, probably would have played 15 years, you know. Um, but that just wasn't the era. And, I look, I always tell people I wasn't the only one doing it in high school. I wasn't the only one doing it in college. And I certainly wasn't the only one doing it at the big league level. I always tell people we were products of our time. That's what we did back then. Because compared to what Jim Palmer did and in the innings that he threw and all those boys back then, we didn't throw anything at all. You know, because you go look at Jim's numbers, like he's throwing 250, 300 innings in the big league season. It's like, wow. Although I did throw 352. In a 14-month period between uh, my sophomore year at LSU straight to the Olympic team and back my junior year, I threw 352 in 16 months as a 20-year-old, which probably wasn't good for the arm either. But, you know, that's that's what it was, you know.
2: You always wanted to go out there and, and take the ball. But what was it like watching Cal Ripken go about his streak the, the way that he did? You, you talk about Cal a lot, but... From somebody that was, was watching what Cal was doing and how he was putting his body through all that, uh, what, what was that experience like witnessing that every day? Well, and, and that's why I think one reason why, besides being a competitor, I pushed myself
3: so hard too because I had a locker right next to Junior at Camden Yards for, for four years. And I watched this guy put on his uniform every day, bruised up, beat up, and go take the field and play one of the toughest positions on the field and play it at an elite level. And I went – I started telling myself, if that dude can do that, there's no reason why I can't take the ball every fifth day, right? Uh, there's no reason why I can't take it every fifth day. No matter how I feel, my team relies on me, the bullpen relies on me to go out there, and I take pride in the fact that – you know, I averaged almost six and two-thirds every time I took the ball. I, I went to the seventh. That was my average for – nine years you know and I took the pride in doing that but Cal's probably one of the big reasons why I went no matter what and took the ball you know I can remember Milwaukee waking up sick one morning and it was my turn to pitch it was a day game and I got to the ballpark they stuck an IV in my arm to put fluids in my arm before the game and after every inning guys I would run up to the trainer i lay in or watch the game on TV they put an IV in my arm they pumped fluids in my arm during the game when we got through batting and got three out, they'd pull the needle out. I'd run out there and I'd pitch three outs. I'd run back up and do it again. But it was my turn to go and pitch. And so I felt like that my teammates count on me. And I think I learned a lot. I think all of us learned a lot of that from, from Cal to see him go out every day to do what he did. It was just a, an amazing feat in
0: itself. So you were a gamer. No one can question that at all. Uh, in your post-career, uh, physically, you you have to pay for it a little bit. You were We were talking about this before we started it's kind of like that picture of an nfl quarterback who's been around on the nfl broadcast and they take you through each part of the body and all the aches and pains and surgeries uh roethlisberger always stands out uh to that end when they do that uh but ben do you want to take us through the latest in surgeries in your life well i had my knee scoped the other day and
3: it just started bothering me and and i go get the mri and the guy says you know hey you shredded your meniscus you know and i was like great i did the other one four years ago he took it out and And now he takes this one out the other day, and I'm two weeks post surgery and it it feels great, you know. And like we were talking about, the the bad news is I got no cushion in there at all. The good news is there was no recovery at all. Like I'm out walking around and working out and doing stuff already. So there's good and bad to it. But the good news is, like we talked about, Jim Palmer, who knows a little bit about everything, told me he had both of his knees done way back in nineteen eighty, and he's still kicking, you know, no meniscus in either one of his and no knee replacement. But I'm afraid down the road, and you're right. I mean, look everybody's uh, body is different. Uh, I was a football, basketball, baseball player. even played two sports in college. And uh, so the knees, you know, everything has a, a (laughs) I guess, an expiration on it. And my knees have, uh, you know, given out on me a little bit as far as meniscus. But, hey, I'm up and running.
0: Shoulder, elbow? Three rotator cuff surgeries, um,
3: an ankle surgery, two knee surgeries. a wrist surgery. So a, no no a Tommy John. Surgery. No Tommy John. You know, and I always tell people, that's the strange thing, and you might remember this. In my time, if ten pitchers went down, nine of them had shoulder issues. Really. Maybe one had elbow. Now, for whatever reason, if ten pitchers go down now in college or high school at the big league level, nine of them have elbow issues now. And I can't put a finger – on why the only thing I can come, come up with is two things. One, I think we're throwing more at the youth league levels than we ever had. A lot of these kids aren't taking any time off. But I also think kids are starting to generate velocities now that their ligaments and their tendons and their muscles at 14, 15, 16 years old just cannot take. And so, you know, the game has changed now. Now it's about how hard can you throw it, maximum velocity, max effort. And that's what kids are being told now at the big league, even at the big league level. Hey, max effort, if you give me three innings, that's great. I'll come get you out of the ball game. But I, our goal was to cruise along at 90% max effort, save something, and try to throw 125 pitches and be in the game in the seventh inning to try to save the bullpen. So things have changed. There's a little bit different approach to pitching now from, okay. You know, it's, I told somebody this last year. It almost feels like in college ball and the big league level that, Two ground balls and a pop-up now seems like a bad inning. When in my era, it wasn't. That's what you – if I could go out there and throw five pitches at an inning and you popped up and you popped up and you grounded out, thank you very much. I threw five pitches. I'm going back to the dugout. I got more bullets the next time I come back out. But now it's like, okay, it's okay to throw 18 pitches. We got to punch out two and maybe we get a fly ball on the other one, you know. So things are different now. It's become more swing and miss and max effort. But that's just where we are right now, just like Launch angle and bat path, and where we are right now. I think it's just something that we're in.
2: We might be in it now, but are we going to get back to appreciating five, ten pitch innings? I think so. I think so. When we put a,
3: and I think you'll get back to flatter bat paths too. Um, You know, we struck out more, as you guys know. You guys know that we ever have in the history of Major League Baseball. Last year, we also hit more home runs. But also our batting averages have gone down. If you go back two years ago, I think we had the lowest overall batting average in MLB since the implementation of the DH way back in the 70s or whatever because the game has changed now. And as a pitcher, especially a power pitcher, I would love to pitch in today's era, you know, because if you've got a plus fastball and you can ride into the upper quarter of the strike zone, you can have a lot of success today. The toughest hitters for me to get out there in my time were the hitters that the bat pass stayed in the hitting zone a long time a Kirby Puckett, a Wade Boggs, a Paul Molitor, guys like that. Those are the guys you hated to face because the back path stayed in the path that baseball a long time. So, if they were a little bit early, they pulled the ball. If they were a little bit late, they hit it the opposite way. Those guys, to me, were the toughest guys to get out because of that, you know. And so, I think we're going to start to see – I think your big guys are always going to blow it out of the ballpark, but I think some of these other guys, you're going to see that bat path starting to flatten just a little bit because they're going to put the ball in play a little bit more – and so I think it's a phase that we're in. Uh, I think for certain pitchers, uh, there's going to be a value for a veteran guy to be able to go out there and throw 115 pitches and two ground balls and a pop-up is going to be a great inning for him. But don't get me wrong. There's a time we got a strike out guys. I got the winning run at third base. I only got one out. I need my strikeout right there as a pitcher, but I'm okay with you popping up twice and grounding up. I think we're going to get back to some of that as well.
0: Last one for me, Ben, uh, give me some one in, position player or pitcher in spring training when you were there to broadcast, but also there uh, as a uh, coach that really jumped out to you?
3: Well, uh, I'll give you two. Um, Wade LeBlanc, to me, I watched him closely. I know he's a veteran guy. I know we picked him up this year. But I tell you what, he came in and really was spot. I watched him throw multiple, multiple bullpens. I watched him throw a lot of simulated games. And I'll tell you what. This guy seemed to be on his game every time he went out. Now that's not power stuff. It's a young man, well, not so young baseball terms anymore, but a guy that's been around a little bit. But he really knows how to pitch. And I was not surprised at all. He was going to be in the rotation for the Orioles, and I think he still will be. Um, Austin Hayes, man, I can't get away from him. He impressed me last year in September with the call-up, but then I got to watch him closely take his at-bats in the batting cage. I got to watch him run closely. I got to watch him throw a little bit in infield, outfield. This guy's a potential superstar. I know we've been saying that for a couple of years, but Austin Hayes checks all the boxes, guys. I mean, he can run. He can throw. He can defend. And we got a glimpse of that again. I don't think it's a huge surprise to say that, but his athleticism to me – Being around and watching for two weeks is even better than I thought it was watching him play the ball games. Like, he really is one of the most athletic guys on the field. You see him in the weight room, he's a strong kid. So, I really like him, too. I mean, he's not a surprise. I know we're going to play center field and he's going to be there and potentially he could be a a guy that's going to be a a difference maker for, you know, a lot of years for the Orioles. But he really impressed me with his athleticism in spring training.
2: And I guess, Ben, the the last one for me, just because I've always wondered about this, when you would bring Gators into the clubhouse, when you were with the Orioles, uh, who jumped the highest? Who was the most scared?
3: Oh, I wouldn't be lying to you if I said all of them. Everybody. (laughs) You know, because – you know, I, I caught one fish in one afternoon and stuck it in my bathtub and wrapped his mouth up so it wouldn't bite me at nighttime. And I had a big duffel bag. And so I went to the ballpark the next morning for spring training, 8 o'clock, I just brought the duffel bag in. Nobody knew what was in the duffel bag. And I just kind of unzipped it and set it by my locker and walked away. Well, it took about a minute for this alligator to get out, and it starts running through the clubhouse. And I'm like, there was screaming like you've never heard screaming in your life. There was actually guys on top of their lockers screaming as the alligator ran through the clubhouse. Now, again, I had his mouth taped, Judge, so he wasn't going to bite anybody. So uh, that was at the old Twin Lakes facility uh, in Sarasota where the minor leaguers are right now. So after I got scolded a little bit by everybody, I went and grabbed it and, and undid the tape and put it in the pond there, at Twin Lakes facility. But uh, I think everybody I had. – let's put it like this. I had the entire locker room to myself once the Alligators got loose, except for the guys that were sitting on top of their lockers. Everybody else ran out of the clubhouse.
0: That is <laughs> an amazing Big Ben story, I can promise. <laughs> Only you in the big leagues, Ben. Uh, well, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun, Ben. We hope to see you soon, uh, calling Orioles games. But thank you for doing this.
3: Well, thanks for having me, guys. Y'all stay safe, and, and I got my hands like this. I'm hoping we'll seeing each other soon, and we'll be playing some baseball real soon.
0: Absolutely. Big Ben McDonald, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Take care. So there you go. The famous alligator story, Jeff. Uh, I have to be honest with you. I would have reacted the same way. I would have gotten on top of a locker or or gotten the heck out of there. Honestly, a lot of the
2: videos that I've seen on social media that Ben has been doing, and they're on Instagram and Twitter about some of his adventures nowadays with uh, snakes and all kinds of other different wildlife from where he is down on the bayou makes me a little bit nervous. Not, not going to lie. Those are, those are probably not my things and would make me a little uncomfortable and having an alligator in the clubhouse would certainly make me nervous. But you know, with with, with Ben it seems like he builds great relationships with his broadcast partners. He builds great relationships with his teammates and he probably has a unique relationship with uh, some
0: friends in the wild as well, uh, but that's just the way Ben McDonald is. Here's the thing about Ben McDonald. What you've seen here is what you get. There's, yeah. there's nothing more, nothing left. He's as genuine and, uh, in, and as authentic as you could possibly imagine. I mean, a wonderful uh, athlete, and obviously to be number one overall, and we talked about the injuries and all of those things, uh, but still had a number of really good seasons. And we talked about the 94 campaign. No, If they don't go on strike there, he was putting together his best season, perhaps maybe not totally with ERA, but the trajectory of his season in August uh, and what he had done historically in September uh, likely would have gone down as one of the uh, best Big Ben seasons, a real shot at 18-19-20 wins. He finished with 14 that year. His ERA
2: was a little bit over four and I think he was saying that Mike Musina was was right around 16 wins and the Orioles were playing some pretty good baseball at that stretch after they had been in a little bit of a funk at that part of the 94 season not too far behind in the wild card race they had a a little bit of you know there was some separation between them and the Yankees but you felt like if the season had kept going the Orioles would have definitely made a push For the playoffs but like every team is wondering from from 1994 Montreal Expos probably thought they would have been World Series champions had there been a rest of the 1994 season but it was not to be and then in 95 you get started a little bit later and and hearing some of Ben's takeaways on that especially as players now begin to try and figure out how they're going to come back should spring training to get started uh, it, it makes for some interesting points that maybe some of today's
0: players could, could try to apply with 2020 getting restarted. And just one last point, and it's probably an irrelevant one, uh, but in those days, there was still a lot of talk about 20 wins and whether Ben could get there in 94 or not. You know, my, uh, Mike Messina, my guy, my obsession in those days, uh, he had 16 wins, as you said, when they went on strike on August 12th. I mean, everyone w- made a big deal of Mike not being able to get to 20. He eventually did in the final game of his career at Yankee Stadium. But he had 16 when they went on strike on August 12th. He might have won 22 that year, maybe 23. And he had 19 wins the following season in a strike-shortened season. So uh, he might have won 23 or four times, and then he had 19 and 96. I mean, he – he was kind of the almost guy for some of those years, almost a perfect game, almost 20 wins a few times. Uh, so, uh, he, you know, just missing that kind of, um, that kind of upper, 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 upper echelon of Maddox and Johnson in those days and guys like that Glavin. Uh, although in my mind, it's still, he, he's right there. And obviously a hall of famer like all of them, but um, anyways, just want to make that point about 20 wins, but both Mussina and McDonald could have gone there and the Orioles, I don't believe I've had a 20 game winner since what a, uh, since 1984, I think. I believe it was Mike Boddicker who was the last 20-game winner, if you want to check the record books on that. So that's a, that is a long time between 20-win seasons uh, for the Orioles franchise. You know, Tillman's probably the only Oriole who's gotten relatively close in recent history to 20. I think uh, he hit late August or early September a few years ago with, with 15 or 16, but obviously it didn't happen. But the relevancy of that number, Jeff, as you know, not what it used to be. And for Ben, you also
2: have to consider that he was rushed to the major leagues. I think he made one start in Frederick, and then it was pretty much right to Baltimore where he was told that it'll, it'll take 150, 200 innings where the light bulb will, will start to at least flicker. And then once you get to the very end of his 20s, he starts to deal with some of the injury problems. And so in many ways, and part of this is rooted in the fact that he wants 221 pitches in a game as yep. an amateur, that the amount of pitches that he threw would have you think, how good could this guy have been if maybe he'd spent a little bit of time in the, in the minor leagues and had a chance to work through some things? And also, how would he have performed and continued to, once he got into his prime, how good would he have been if he hadn't been battling some of those injuries, which stem from throwing a lot of pitches in his earlier days?
0: All right, well, that was a fun episode. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Until next time, be well and safe out there. This has been another edition of Orioles Magic, the podcast presented by Miller Wright.
1: Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best